Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 16th of September 2019 and this is episode 128. On this week's programme, Dr Samuel Foster, visiting academic in the School of History at the University of East Anglia, talks about Serbia in the Great War. I spoke to Samuel from his home in Norfolk. Samuel, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? My name's Samuel Foster. I am a visiting academic and researcher at the University of East Anglia in the School of History. And my interest in the Great War came about very gradually. It was, it was, I can't really, I wouldn't really sort of associate it one particular sort of point in my career. When I was growing up, I had a lot of, there were quite a few members of my family who had taken part in the Second World War, uh, who were very influential in my, in those kind of formative years. As a result, the kind of the Second World War was always presented to me as being something a lot more grounded, a lot more real. Whereas the First World War, which I was already at that point getting interested in, always seemed to be kind of something that was presented as more symbolic, kind of not quite a sort of, not quite a historical event as it was a kind of series of symbolic occurrences, such as the mass slaughter on the Western Front, events such as the Battle of the Somme, the introduction of new weapons and technology, that kind of thing. And then when I got to university, I, when, and I also started looking at the history of southeastern Europe. Those, those, those two kind of um, factors crossed paths, if you like, and led to me becoming more and more interested in, first of all, uncovering more about the First World War, but really kind of away from what's typically focused on. So moving away from the Western Front, looking at um, military theatres, other countries that um, weren't necessarily, and particularly also the political struggles behind them. Because I'm, I'm sure, because I'm sure people can appreciate, not every country that took part in the First World War had identical motives to, say, Britain and France or Germany, for instance, puppet that was dragged into the war by the great powers. So that I think that was really kind of where my interest stems from. So today we're going to talk about Serbia and its role in the Great War. Before we start, can you tell us about how Serbia was created and how it became a nation state? <laughs> Serbia. Just for those who are who aren't who aren't that familiar with um, sort of the geography of southeastern Europe and the Balkans, is a small country located in roughly the western portion of the Balkan Peninsula in southeast Europe. Uh, the Serbs themselves are what we call a Slavic people, similar to say the Poles or the Russians or Ukrainians, and they are a, they are a branch of the Slavic people known as the Southern Slavs which is also where we get the term Yugoslav from. Yugoslav literally just means South Southern Slav or South Slav. Uh, alongside the Serbs, you also have Croats, Montenegrins, Bosnians, Macedonians, Bulgarians, Slovenes. They're also all part of this group known as the Southern Slavs. The languages they speak are um, largely, they can, be, they can be very easily understood. Um, there's a lot of overlap. For example, Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian and Montenegrin are effectively dialects of the same language, so very closely related ethnically and linguistically. The, the main defining factor would probably be something like um, religion. So, for example, the Serbs very strongly identify with the Orthodox Church. That's often kind of classified, that's often looked upon as kind of a, sig as a sort of signature mark of Serbian identity. And Serbia itself 
um, the Serbs, along with the Southern Slavs, had arrived in the region sort of in the early medieval period. Serbia had been a very successful kingdom, um, quite militarily strong, economically very influential in the region. Towards the end of that, towards the end of that period, it was of the medieval period. It was actually conquered by the Ottoman Empire, um, who brought, amongst other things, Islam to the region. And the sort of Serbian resistance against the Ottoman Empire would later become very important in Serbian national ideology, particularly in kind of nationalist in um, in relation to Serbian nationalism and. Serb, the concept of modern Serbian identity, this idea of the Serbs as being a kind of force of resistance, usually again, usually in defence of what what was often what would be classified at various points as European civilization. So Serbia was then a part of the Ottoman Empire for just under 500 years. At the very beginning of the 19th century, a series of re- of revolts, major revolts. They weren't actually revolts against. Ottoman Empire per se, they were more revolts against um, the local governments of the region that was governing Serbia. So the revolutionary leaders initially said, we are revolting, we're rebelling against this authority to restore the rightful authority of the Ottoman Sultan. So it was quite a strange sort of uh, sort of series of um, series of events that occurred. But eventually, as kind of time went on, so in about 1817, Serbia was granted, became, was kind of granted essentially maximum autonomy, something like um, devolution max, if you like, if to think of a contemporary British um, um, example. They gradually through the 19th century increasingly gained more and more independence until eventually in 1870 recognised as an independent nation state, although effectively before that it had, es- it had essentially operated as a virtually independent country anyway. So for instance, in the 1830s, for example, Britain and Russia had both established diplomatic, direct diplomatic relations with Serbia. So it was already running its own foreign affairs, its own military affairs, its own internal affairs. And for my education, was it still part of the Ottoman Empire or was it an independent country by sort of the late 19th century? Officially, it was, well, it was what, we, is what you might call a vassal of the Ottoman Empire. Um, so technically, it was under the control. It had its own ruling prince. It was, um, but te- who technically had to swear allegiance to the Ottoman Sultan in Constantinople. But realistically, they pretty much did whatever the Serbs pretty much did whatever they wanted in terms of, um, as again, building their own army, developing their own um, state institutions, foreign policy, that sort of thing. It was only really in 1878 when Serbia was officially recognised as a fully independent country. But that was literally just the great European powers putting a rubber stamp on Serbia's what was already effectively Serbian independence at that point. So we get to 1912, Serbia is still a battle state of um, the Ottoman Empire, and then we have these series of wars in the Balkans, which I think are known as the Balkan Wars, in sort of 1912-1913. What was Serbia doing in those conflicts? Just to kind of give give the listeners a little context, the Balkan Wars, um, alongside Serbia, um, other countries in the Balkans, mainly Greece, Bulgaria, Romania, um, had also acquired, gradually acquired their own independence during the 19th and early 20th centuries. The Balkan Wars were essentially a series of campaigns by these countries, well, by Serbia, Greece, Bulgaria, and Montenegro, which had already, already long before Serbia, in fact, existed as an independent country, um, against what was left of the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans. Essentially, it was pr- effectively a, power, a land grab. So these countries were attempting to grab what remained of the Ottoman territory, of the Ottomans' Balkan territories, and effectively kind of fulfill what many nationalists in the countries deemed to be sort of their national debt identity, which typically involved acquiring lands that were deemed historically part of the country, 
um, usually by claiming that the people who lived in those territories were in fact ethnically Serbs or ethnically Bulgarians. So these conflicts sort of draw to a close with various bits of land being obtained by the various countries. Now we come to the outbreak of the First World War. And obviously we have a Serbian who shoots the Archduke and triggers the whole thing off. So what, what happened there and who was this Serbian? Well, Gavrilo Princip, who was the, who was the actual the assassin who pulled the trigger on the 28th of June 1914, wasn't technically a Serb. Or, he, or rather, he wasn't a Serb from Serbia. He was actually a Serb from Bosnia. This is kind of where it becomes quite, it becomes even more complicated because uh, um, not all Serbs officially um, actually lived within the borders of Serbia, the country, in, say, Bosnia-Herzegovina, which had, until 1908, also been an Ottoman province that was then annexed by Austria-Hungary. The largest minority or the largest ethnic group within there identified as Serbs. They were... Slavic-speaking Orthodox peasants, predominantly. And Gavrilo Princip was himself a member of that community. Although, here again, having been quite well educated by the standards of Bosnian society at the time, he didn't actually identify as a Serbian nationalist or adhere to Serbian nationalism. He actually identified as a pan-Slavist or a Yugoslav. In fact, declared, I am a Yugoslav. I am doing this to not just free Serbs, but to free all Slavic speakers under Austro-Hungarian rule. The sort of the assassination itself had fairly extensive involvement by nationalist organisations in Serbia. Some of you may have heard of the um, a group known as the Black Hand, or their slightly more dramatic sounding name, Freedom or Death. The They were in fact a group of mostly Serbian military officers um, whose founding members had actually taken part in overthrowing the unpopular pro-Austro-Hungarian king, Serbian king in 1903. King Alexander Obrenovich. They'd broken into his palace, murdered him and his wife, then thrown the bodies out of the window, which caused a major sensation in, across Europe, mainly because of the, how sort of dramatic and violent the murders had been. Their leader, a chap called Colonel Dragutin Dmitrievich, or known as Apis, which is his nickname, is often deemed to be the mastermind behind the assassination, actually then later acquired a, seat, a fairly senior position. He became head of Serbian military intelligence. But again, it becomes, it's kind of Serbia's involvement becomes a bit murky here because Works such as, say, Christopher Clarke's book, The Sleepwalkers, often sort of point to, say, the involvement of the Serbian government in this or some form of involvement. The reality was Apis, for example, was a staunch enemy of the prime minister, Nikola Pasic, who was also a very hard Serbian nationalist. This is the thing about nationalists. They tend to usually despise each other as much as <laughs> their kind of external enemies. But yeah, and also the sort of the involvement of Serbia itself, the country, was very much tied to wider tensions within Europe. Serbia, Russia for decades, ever since, even before Serbia's independence, had been attempting to build up political and cultural influence in the country um, with varying levels of success. Um, France, just before the break of the First World War, had actually established quite a strong cultural presence in the country and political presence. Um, the French looked to the Serbs as being a potential useful ally against German influence, which they feared was kind of encroaching into these corners of Eastern Europe. And um, so Serbia, even at this point, was already tied into a lot of these kind of broader political tensions. And also, uh, some people might also point to the ultimatum, the famous ultimatum Austro-Hungary handed Serbia on the 23rd of July. The Serbs actually accepted most of the ultimatum's points. Um, this is the thing. But, but they rejected kind of, um, they often, it's often pointed out they rejected one of them, that being that the investigation into the assassinations be overseen by Austro-Hungarian police, police investigators. 
the reality was, ironically, that Serbia actually, the reason for this escalator was Serbia demanded that the Austro-Hungarians actually comply with international laws. They said, no, instead of over, instead of overseeing the investigation yourselves, let, uh, yeah, instead of overseeing the investigation, let's send this to The Hague, to the International Court in The Hague and have them oversee it. So ironically enough, the worsening situation was the fact that Serbia, at least nominally, insisted that Austro-Hungary play by the same rules it purported to be upholding. So why did Serbia join the Allies in the war? Well, um, for starters, the first act of actual military aggression occurs in southeastern Europe, which it, uh, when Austro-Hungary itself invades Serbia, it crosses the Danube, which is the north, which was the northern border, dividing um, Serbia from the um, from the empire to the north. So in effect, the Serbs are technically justified in that they can then they then they are then obliged to fight back as part of in for national self-defense. And but as I, as I already mentioned, Serbia is pretty much although it's not officially part of the Allies, it is essentially it's already fairly it well integrated into the Allied system. So or the, what's what's often known as the Triple Entente. It already has close links to France, historic links to Russia. Russia itself um, pledges during the July crisis that occurs just before, that if, if Austro-Hungary um, shows any aggression towards Serbia, Russia will intervene. So in many respects, Serbia's re the reason Serbia um, sided for the Allies was almost, I would say, a no-brainer. It faces this very large military um, military threat from its from the north. It potentially has a lot to gain from a confrontation with Austro-Hungary. Serbia covets certainly Bosnia-Herzegovina and other, and, other, and other areas of territory currently under Austro-Hungarian rule. So, so I'd say I think Serbia's reasons for entering the war are actually a lot less complex or vague than, than possibly even more so than, say, Britain's, for instance. So what happened in the opening days of the war with the Austrians invading? The first phase of the war, if you like, um, in, Ser in Serbia, or, what's, or what then becomes known as the Serbian campaign, um, begins very um, begins with two um, sorry rather one a major military victory um, at a place called the uh, uh, called Mount Ser which is up in northwestern up in northwestern Serbia fairly rural area so the Austro-Hungarian Empire invades it occupies a small corner of the northwest then in August 1914 the Serbs launch a major surprise attack for the main Austrian forces that are camped up on sort of Mount Ser is more like a plateau rather than a mountain. So they launch this major attack. Um, the Austrians are sort of taken by surprise. They do they do regroup and sort of launch a counterattack, but by then they've kind of their full of military formations have fallen apart and they're beaten back over the border. Um, this is a set, this is something that nobody was expecting at all. Um, you often hear, for instance, in popular narratives of the of the First World War. Um, about how Austro-Hungary was very badly prepared, badly organized, poorly equipped compared to the Serbs. This is actually, this wasn't actually the case. Serbia, the, have, having recently just fought almost a two-year campaign further to the south against the Ottomans, the Serbian army itself was um, badly worn out. There's an excellent book by an author called James Lyon, who actually describes the conditions of the Serbian army at this stage. He mentions that many of the soldiers who were conscripts, did, who were peasant conscripts, didn't even have uniforms or footwear, for instance. The, despite being a mostly agricultural country, it was having to import grains and foodstuffs from Bulgaria, um, who later became an, uh, one who was late, who later fought against Serbia. So the fact that the Serbs were able to win this um, admittedly very well-planned and orchestrated um, victory 
right at the beginning of the war was against um, an army that effective, um, realistically was one of the better equipped ones. Um, the Austrians had some of the best art Austrian artillery was regarded as so good that the Germans later um, acquired that the uh, Nazi Germany later um, removed many of the Austrian artillery cannons from their museums and used them on the Eastern Front in the Second World War because they were deemed to be so accurate and so well 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 designed. <clears throat> it's kind of a testament to how well the Serbian army was itself led. Later on, so after the Battle of Mount Ser, they um, the Serbs are then pressured by both members of their um, elements within the Serbian government and the Allies to launch an invasion of Austrian of Austro-Hungarian ruled Bosnia. That doesn't really go anywhere. They do make, they do kind of, they sort of, uh, they sort of advance on the border, but then the Austrians counterattack, so the Serbian army retreats. At this point, the Serbian army itself is deteriorating. Um, they're having, they, they're suffering from very high desertion rates. Um, there are some regiments, for example, that lose 75% of their total uh, manpower, mainly because peasants are abandoning, uh, most of the conscripts who are peasants were abandoning it to return to their family farms for harvest. This was getting late into the year. At the end of 1914, November to December, the Austro-Hungarians launch another invasion. This time they actually they are actually successful in capturing the Serbian capital Belgrade, um, as well as a large portion of its northern territories. But the Serbs sort of again, sort of to everyone's surprise, um, the Serbian army at this point is deemed to be in a state of virtual collapse, but they actually launch another counter-effective, uh, a counter-offensive, and then retake Belgrade. This again is kind of something nobody, not even the Russians, are expecting. This. This is a kind of, deemed almost as a kind of miracle. If you read, for example, memoirs by uh, British military, British and French military um, observers, who are who are sort of stationed with the Serbian army and government, they kind of talk about how, um, how in some respects, how uh, Serbian soldiers put their own to shame by the fact of how how tough and um, just amazingly competent they are at fighting, even though their equipment's so bad. And this also prompts the Austro-Hungarians to effectively abandon the, Ser the invasion of Serbia. This is a, this is deemed a, this is a major kind of blow to Austro-Hungary's prestige um, and its standing, particularly within the Central Powers Alliance. However, kind of then throughout 1915, um, the situation in Serbia does actually start to deteriorate. Um, there is a major outbreak at the beginning of the year, um, a major outbreak of a disease called typhus, which is a particularly unpleasant disease that's carried um, on light. It's transferred through lice. It thrives in cold, damp conditions, which is very much kind of what you'd expect in Serbia and uh, sort of be happening in Serbia, which very much kind of the conditions um, in Serbia during the winter. There's also it's also passed on by the large number of internally displaced refugees who are fleeing from the north due to the fighting. And this essentially and the war very quickly in Serbia quickly devolves into a humanitarian crisis. Um, large numbers of humanitarian relief workers from Britain, France, as well as neutral countries such as America start to pour in. Um, they're attempting to combat this this disease, and they are fairly successful. But the disease, but the epidemic, then go quickly cripple, effectively cripple Ser Serbia's ability to um, resist a further invasion. At the end of 1915, um, although this disease has at this point started to recede, there is another invasion. Uh, this time, Austria-Hungary invades in con um, in alliance with Germany. Um, Germany is effectively leading the invasion at this point. They invade from the north, whilst in the east, Serbia's main regional rival, apart from Austro-Hungary, Bulgaria, also invades. And this is essentially um, the armies, the Serbian army at this point is incapable of resisting. Um, at this point, Radomir Putnik, who is the overall um, head of Serbian high command, very kind of experienced veteran field marshal, 
declares um, a full-scale retreat. Um, this is kind of the final stage of this early of this early phase, where the Serbian army, around 200,000 Serbian soldiers and civilian refugees, flee from Serbia. They they do actually attempt to mount a resistance against the Bulgarians to the south in Kosovo, but um, which was then part of Serbia but are very quickly crushed by the Bulgarian army. And and then these and as a consequence, these huge refugee columns of Serbs flee across the uh, Albanian and Montenegrin mountains to the west, where they eventually arrive at the Albanian coast and are evacuated by the British, French and Italian navies. Um, it's a it's kind of one of the war's major, major rescue operations, as well as, a, well, a very much a humanitarian tragedy. So what happens in the rest of the war and how is the situation of Serbia affected by the landings at Salonika? Following the evacuation, um, the evacuations from Albania, the Serbian army is then transported by the Allied navies to um, various islands, um, specifically Corfu. There, they are cut. They are given their, where they're sort of where essentially the um, they're given they're um, given time to re- regroup, recuperate. Again, large numbers of the soldiers are dying at this point. So they so again, this is this is an ongoing um, humanitarian crisis as much as a military as much as a military exercise. However, eventually in mid 1916. The, um, the reconstituted Serbian army is then shipped down to Greece, to Salonika. They land, they land at Salonika. Nothing very much happens until November 1916, where the Serbs, uh, in conjunction with the French, spearhead an allied offensive against what's mostly at this point the Bulgarian army. By this point, has effectively been largely abandoned by Austro-Hungary um, and is with only a few German um, specialists left to um, to support it. They spearhead this um, offensive and retake the city of Monastir or Bitola, which is in today's North Macedonia. At that point, it had been occupied. This is a part of the territory annexed by Serbia during the Balkan Wars. And this is probably until 1918. This is effectively the only major piece, um, the only major military action that occurs during the Salonika campaign. The Serbs, with in alliance with the French, uh, backed up by. Um, the, the, the rest of the allies effectively capture 50 over 50 kilometers of territory which is you know this is something that's almost unheard of on say the western front at this point there's nothing again nothing really much happens in 1917 the salonica front itself isn't inert there is fighting the french french and serb forces do regularly engage with the bulgarians but there are no major offensives really until around september 1918 where again the Serbs and French, uh, Serb and French-led offensive is sort of spearheads another kind of major campaign. The Bulgarians are actually defeat, roundly defeated by the Serbs and French at something called the Battle of Dobropolje, and this gradually precipitates Bulgaria's surrender. Bulgaria is also at this point gradually in a state of collapse by this by the stage of the war. So what happens after the war, and how did Serbia become part of Yugoslavia? At the same time as the Serbian campaign itself is unfolding, behind the, sort of behind the scenes politically, there are also other um, various kind of groups are sort of jockeying for power. One group in particular is known, known as the Yugoslav Committee. Just to kind of explain to the members, the idea about um, sort of the idea of Yugoslavia and Yugoslavism as the sort of ideology behind it was often called um, actually dates back several centuries it's um, although under different names by the 19th century however it kind of gains a lot more coherence and it's the belief that and it's the belief that um, Serbs 
Croats and Slovenes represent effectively three tribes of the same nation, that nation being Yugoslavia. Now, the idea itself does come into, con does come into conflict with Serbian nationalist ideas, which typically emphasise the fact that um, all Serbs should belong to the same country, they should exist, live over the same borders. But they also overlap quite considerably. The idea of Yugoslavia itself also gains a lot of currency in Serbian politics. During the war, a group of anti-Austro-Hungarian politician, um, politicians from mostly Croatia and Slovenia flee to exile in London. They, 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 they receive funding from the Serbian government. Um, they set up something called the Yugoslav Committee, which regularly meets with representatives of the Serbian government in exile. And they sort of attempt, and they both kind of attempt to coordinate a propaganda campaign, although there are lots of tensions, divisions within this campaign as to what the message should be. But eventually in 1917, the leaders of the Yugoslav Committee actually meet with the Serbian Prime Minister, Nikola Pašić, on the island of Corfu. And they sign something known as the Corfu Declaration or the Declaration of Corfu, which effectively pledges that both the Serbian government and anti-Austro-Hungarian elements and, anti and various anti-Austro-Hungarian factions affiliated to Yugoslavism will work together to achieve an independent Yugoslavian state after the war through the partition of Austro-Hungary. Um, essentially removing the, what's now Croatia, Slovenia and Bosnia from Austro-Hungary and unifying with Serbia and Montenegro. And so what was the impact of the war on the people of Serbia? We often kind of think of the war in particularly from the perspective of Britain as being this kind of grave tragedy, um, this often sort of poetic, uh, that kind of the kind of changes that sort of define, that kind of um, redefines sort of how we understand society and how we understand uh, and politics. In the case of Serbia, it's I would I would argue it's even more devastating and even more historically game changing than anything. Just to kind of give you an example, although Serbia's total casualties only accounted for about eight percent of the Allies' total casualty rates overall, the numbers that were killed were proportionally the highest of any of the war's participants with the possible exception of the Ottoman Empire. This included an estimated 58% of the entire regular army due to either fighting or disease. To kind of put this into perspective, in 1914, Serbia was able to call on 420,000 uh, 420, conscripts. In 1918, they had just over 100,000 remaining. So kind of the sort of huge toll that the Serbian army had to pay throughout the campaigns. The typhus epidemic in 1915 alone was believed to have killed 150,000 soldiers and civilians. Um, while, on, to give you another example, on the Greek island of Vido, which was one of the islands near to Corfu where the army was evacuated, the, the sort of the waters around that island were, Nick, were referred to as Plava Grobnica by the Serbs, or which is which translates to the Blue Graveyard, owing to the sheer number of soldiers um, who often following the evacuation simply cut, died from exhaustion. Many of, the, many of these soldiers to also were, were themselves only 15, 16-year-old boys. For the civilian population, the consequences were equally, if not more, grim. Again, recurrent epidemics, diseases, widespread starvation. I think by an, in, um, conservative estimates for the total numbers of actual civilian military deaths are around 750,000, which still amounted to over 16% of Serbia's entire national population. I think, again, and, and again, just to kind of give you a, fi a final sort of a, a 
final sort of illustration of the devastation this caused. Following the war, there were in Serbia alone, there were 114 disabled, thousand disabled veterans and half a million orphan children. So huge, devastating impact. During the war itself, uh, following the occupation, the, the Serbia itself was divided into two military zones of occupation, one overseen by Austro-Hungary, one overseen by Bulgaria. A report into war crimes conducted by a Swiss criminologist called Archibald Rice, um, which, although he was hired by the Serbian government, so you can't necessarily take his evidence as um, 100% conclusive or accurate, but um, it gives a fairly, it details a fairly grim picture. So, uh, even it, so, for example, in 1914, based on eyewitness testimonies, he recorded kind of mass incidences of mass rape being carried out by the Austro-Hungarian army against um, Serbian women. Austro-Hungarian soldiers frequently used summary execution. Um, they would sum summarily execute elderly civilians. Um, he also found evidence that they'd used explosive rounds, often against retreating refugees and or when carrying out executions, which were actually illegal under international law. Um, and this was also compounded later by testimonies from uh, mostly American relief workers who were then who were then active in Bulgaria during the war prior to 1917, who often recorded um, incidences of the Bulgarians running forced labour camps where Serbian POWs were routinely worked to death or just allowed to starve. So again, it's very kind. Again, we often kind of associate these types of horrors with, say, the Second World War, but very were, this was very much part of the First World War as well. And again, one of the problems as well is um, at this point, while there were inter international laws did exist to kind of protect civilians from these kinds of atrocities, there was um, they were often kind of regarded more as guidelines or something that could or or, there were, or the, something that which uh, military commanders re could routinely find loopholes in. Um, so, for instance, when the Austro-Hungarians invaded Serbia in 1914, commanders would typically accuse sort of elderly peasants of being insurgents or so Serbian soldiers who were disguised as, disguised as elderly peasants, which they would then use effectively as ways of punishing punishing entire communities. So, for example, burning villages. Or, torture, or torturing POWs, supposedly to extract information. Under the occupation itself, again, there was a lot of widespread cultural repression. The ba uh, Serbian Cyrillic, uh, the Serbians use something called the Cyrillic alphabet, which is different to what to the Latin alphabet that we use in um, that we that, that we use in uh, West in Western European and Central European countries. Um, that was completely banned in schools, as was the speaking of Serbian, if you want, in uh, public office. And and, gener and generally as well, economically, it was also equally devastating. Both Bulgaria and Austro-Hungary and, and, um, and the German army towards the end of the war routinely exploited the country and its population. They requisitioned food. They attempted to kind of control... They, they control the supply of goods often and in and particularly in the Bulga and particularly in the Bulgarian in the Bulgarian zone where um, part of the part of their claim to occupying eastern Serbia was that the eastern Serbs weren't in fact Serbs they were Bulgarians who'd who'd forgotten that they were historically forgotten they were Bulgarian which again resulted in what I think what we could what probably legally today would be referred to as genocide. They would essentially execute or most educated men. They would go around villages executing educated members of communities and subsequently then attempting to force civil the civilian population to swear allegiance to the Bulgaria and the Bulgarian nationhood. And finally, Samuel, where can people find out more about your work? Well, I actually have a book coming out at some point, hopefully next year. If you also Google my name, Samuel Foster UEA, you'll be able to gain access to many about my various publications, which are held in UEA repository 
or you could um, or you can find them through my academia.edu profile. And I think if you, and if people are just more generally interested in Serbia in the First World War itself, I would strongly recommend reading James Lyons's book. It's called um, Serbia in the Balkan Front, the Outbreak of the Great War. Samuel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.